Associated Press photographer Mstislav Chernov was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of Russia's war on Ukraine. His new film is 20 Days in Mariupol. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Mstislav Chernov started out as a still photographer in Ukraine. He didn't set out to become a war photographer, but in 2014, when Russia invaded Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula, those were the most prominent stories. Working for the Associated Press, Mstislav moved into video and became skilled delivering footage for the evening news. In February 2022, as Russia threatened to escalate the war, the Associated Press sent Mstislav to Mariupol, a southeastern city of 400,000 people on the front lines. When Russia invaded, Mstislav and his colleagues stayed in Mariupol even when other journalists left. He captured the bombing of a maternity hospital and shared those images around the world. His film, 20 Days in Mariupol, documents those early days of the city's siege before he finally had to escape. He uses voiceover sparingly to share his observations. The city changed so much, so quickly. When we were in the hospital, one of the doctors told me, war is like an x-ray. All human insights become visible. Good people become better, bad people worse. After the maternity hospital bombing, a Ukrainian police officer, Vladimir, asked to make a statement for Mstislav's camera. Russian troops commit war crimes. Our family, our women, our children need help. Our people need help from international society. Please help Mariupol. Vladimir had an idealistic hope that if Mstislav's images reached the world, it might help stop the war. The policeman later played a key role in helping the journalists escape from the city. Mstislav has been doing this long enough that he knows the evening news rarely changes the world's indifference. That's one reason that he sought to tell stories in different ways. He wrote a novel called The Dreamtime that was published in the U.S. by Cherry Orchard Books. 20 Days in Mariupol is his first long-form documentary. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and comes to PBS Frontline in November as a co-production with AP. In October, I sat down with Mstislav in New York City in front of a live audience at the School of Visual Arts in the MFA Program for Social Documentary. We were speaking the day before he was going to receive the Pulitzer Prize. I started by asking how he wound up as a war photographer. I think I was already deep down somewhere. I was, I was feeling that this might be something I want to I do. Uh, I remember there, is, there was a moment, I don't speak about that much, but I'll tell you, there is a, a story here. So there was a moment when I felt that it's, this is probably what I want to do. Uh, I was... Uh, in Turkey in 2012, uh, uh, beginning of 2013, and uh, there were protests at the Taksim Square. And again, by the time I was a documentary photographer, I was doing some NGO work 
<clears throat> but no hard fighting or whatever. And one night I go on a taxi square on a street. I don't really know what's going on. I hear noise. I'm there for a different reason. And I see this police car burning in the middle of the square. Of course, I have a camera with me. So I go towards that car. I don't really understand what I feel now, but I do want to take a photo of it. And I can see some people running around that car and there's a bit of a chaos and then someone falls down unconscious. Doctors rush in, grab him, and I take pictures of all of that. And then I stop for a moment and I thought, this is probably the most surreal, but at the same time, the most real experience I've ever had in my life as a photographer and as a person. Being that close to reality, for me, I think that would made, uh, made me to search more of this experience. And then the re revolution started uh, in Ukraine and then Russia next Crimea, Russia moved in the forces into Donbass and I just kept doing photography and eventually AP um, asked if I could do videos. I <laughs> Again, I, I remember there was a cameraman I was working with and he said, I have to go home. It was 2014 and he has, I have to go home. Can you film? And I had, and I was like, I have a, a record button on my photo camera. <laughs> said, sure, yeah, <laughs> I can film. <laughs> and then he said, look, for AP, there are really few simple rules. You know, make two interviews, not more than one minute. Make shots, five second, five to ten second shots. Um, use the tripod, Mr. Slav. Use the tripod. Um, Here's the example of a shot list which you can send to, to AP when you edit. Is that clear? I said, yeah, sure. And he just left. <laughs> Three days later, Russia shoots down MH17 Boeing over, over the Donbass. So, and I'm one of the first journalists that arrived there on that scene. That was kind of a, a breaking point for me. I really understood what it is to be a, a, a war journalist back then. Because as we were driving in, the, in this field, and you just suddenly realize you're driving through the body parts. And, and then you start walking, and this airplane, which what remains of the airplane is still burning, and then there's bodies scattered across fields, and children still tied to their chairs. It was something so heavy, so unbelievable. I was filming all of that. And interestingly, most of those shots never made to news. They would now, actually. Is but that, is that represent a shift in- It is, it is. What the news is able to- Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think generally media space have changed and become more acceptable to, to this kind of imagery. But back then I was filming all this and was thinking, oh my God, this is gonna stop the war. That's it. It's done. I've sent it. <laughs> and look where we are now. Didn't really stop anything. Things became worse. But next day, what's interesting, the next day I see the same footage I filmed on the Russian channels, on Ukrainian channels, on European channels, and all of them were saying different things. Opposite, for that matter. And that was another lesson I learned that day.
that uh, meanings meanings are manipulated. Not the images, meanings are manipulated. Well, I want to come back to that, but let me go to the start of this film on February 24th um, when Russia uh, escalated their invasion. Um, and I've heard other Ukrainians talk about in the lead up to that, they you know, still didn't believe it was gonna happen. Obviously, you know, there was rumblings, but, um, uh, but I wonder what your thinking was in the lead up to February 24th. That the war is going to happen, like a new wave of the escalation is going to happen became clear when Russia recognized uh, the uh, Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic's so-called entities. Uh, it became clear that they're going to move and there's going to be a new escalation. And... We didn't know if it's going to happen all across the country or it's going to happen just in Donbass like it was before. But in both cases, Mariupol was under, was a target. It was an important target. So it was just, uh, it was just a matter of choice. Where do you meet this wave of the escalation? Where it's going to be uh, my hometown, Kharkiv, or it's going to be uh, uh, Mariupol? Uh, and it was Mariupol, and it was already also also it was kind of clear that it would be surrounded at least for a while. It wasn't going to be besieged, so that's a decision we had to make ahead uh, to go and allow ourselves to to be uh, trapped. What we didn't expect is that we're going to be the only ones that would be reporting from there. Because if there were other journalists, it would be much simpler. Our names wouldn't be targets. Like we would not be so visible, and therefore not so easy to find. But even those, here's a story of Mantas Kudarovichus, right? The Lithuanian filmmaker, filmmaker that apparently was at the same time with us in uh, in Mariupol, and he tried to leave same way we did, just. A couple of weeks later, and he got caught and executed. Um, and the idea to make a film, look again, as I said, I was doing news all these years, and not only in Ukraine, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Karabakh, Gaza, Syria. Uh, all these questions have piled up. All these questions about the nature of war, the nature of journalism nature of humanity in general, because that's what you keep asking yourself when you, when you are in, in a conflict zone. And you know, with small news pieces which you produce, you, you can't ask all those questions. Yes, I have literature, I've written a novel, it's called The Dreamtime, and it's, it kind of works with those themes, but visually I couldn't do anything about it. So. When we left Mariupol with these 30 hours of footage and there was a necessity to do more because only 30 minutes or 40 minutes were published, uh, I understood that this is an opportunity to go back a little bit and, and ask those important questions which I always wanted to. In the film you described, there was, it was day seven of the siege when the other international journalists left. Um, can you talk about 
what went into your decision to stay? What was the conversations you were having with your editors at AP? The last journalist uh, from our hotel, we, we, it was Italian journalist, I don't remember his name. We, he asked us to, to drive him to the evacuation point and he asked us whether we want to and um, we thought no. Again, because the decision to stay was made way before even the siege started. And then it was daily conversations with editors where they ask, okay, Mrs. Love, if you're gonna stay, what's your evacuation plan? What's the what's the security situation? What's your, what's your alternative uh, plan A, plan B, plan C, right? H here's the thing. This siege was very chaotic and it was very hard to predict how, how quickly Russians will move in the city. It was very hard to predict even what was this, what's the safe zone. There was no safe zone in the city. There was no place where, which wasn't bombed. Everything was bombed and indiscriminately. So you couldn't really plan much. You could plan on the places where you can charge the batteries, where you can uh, stay overnight, where you go if you get injured, and where you get the electricity um, or gasoline. Uh, those things you could plan, and they were planned ahead. And I remember we are as we driving in, as we driving in the city at night, just like an hour before the invasion. We buy in the middle of the night. We call we call up the guy buy two secondhand tires, and it was like in the middle of the night. Why do you need tires now? And uh, then we drive in the supermarket, and we buy so much food, and everybody's like what's going on? And we say, the war is going to start. And they're like, no, of course not. Um, so yeah, we were, we were prepared, but you can't be really prepared for the war. It's just impossible. We see moments in the film where people ask, don't want to be filmed. Uh, and there's, you know, a time when we hear you saying to a, a soldier, you know, this is for history. Um, can you talk about you know your decisions about when to film, when not to film? Those people who really said "Don't film me," they're never they're not on the film. There are those people who uh, react on camera and in a more aggressive way, but they do that on camera. They want to be filmed, and it was important to show all kinds of reactions to to the audience, not only friendly, come and. Although they are, they were majority. Like longer we stayed, longer the siege lasted. More people just straight came to us and said, "Film me! I want my relatives to find me. Film, film everything that is happening because we know that we want to know. We want the world know about what is going on." Um, but they were those who who didn't want to be filmed, and uh, okay, we we didn't. Um, but the decision to film. Everything, like as soon as we, as soon as I knew that, no, there is no one else sending footage or no one else even filming, then it was clear that every single minute will be in, invaluable for 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 history. Because if you think about it, it's kind of I still don't understand how it happened. It's four hundred thousand people's city, four hundred thousand, half of a million, considering that a lot of villages evacuated to to Mariupol. Not even one journalist? How did that happen? I have no idea. 
it's a it's a it's a good case study for for how the society works or doesn't work without without journalists in general if you look what happens to the people in a city just after a few days when they get cut off from from any connections the society just collapses and that's that's very sad but that's an extraordinary and i think this is a lot of, gives us a lot of food for thoughts because apparently we are as a modern society dependent on on the connection between each other and on news and on information much more than we think so you're saying it, it wasn't even like being cut off for, from food or electricity it was communication yes, that yes it was still enough food in the city uh, but there was still enough water. Yes, it was bombed. But the fact that people didn't know if Ukraine as a country still exists, the fact that they didn't know which neighborhood is taken, which is not, the fact that people could not contact their families in, in other c cities or even in, in other neighborhoods, uh, they, that's, that's what led to the collapse of the society. So that tells us how, how valuable the journalism actually is. Well, journalism or communication, but the journalism is a communication between wider society groups. So you make this decision that I'm going to film as much as I can because I'm a rare witness uh, here. Um, can you talk a little bit about the logistics of that? You're doing this against a backdrop of no electricity. Um, so can you just talk about the management of your memory cards and your backup uh, drives and um, how did that work? Yeah, so uh, it's all the management is, 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 is all interconnected. So we, as we came, we set up several bases already in the city, in the different neighborhoods, because we didn't know from which side the Russian army is going to be moving from. Well, they were moving from all the sides. But, uh, but there was a, a flat in one neighborhood with a good overview of a city. Uh, we had a hotel uh, booked uh, with, uh, with electricity, with the, with the backups, with, uh, with enough gasoline to run the generators uh, we had agreement with the Red Cross uh, nearby as you know if things go down we we may agree with them and we also had this hospital which we again ahead came to and said look uh, and it helped that we were actually in Mariupol a year before that covering COVID we knew some of the doctors and we came to the hospital and I remember we came to the chief chief doctor doctor and said look it's gonna be really bad. Can we rely on you? Can we stay here if things are going not well? And she again, she said, nothing's gonna happen. Everything's gonna be fine. Everyone was in denial in the city, at least the first week. Uh, so that was another another base that we set up for us. Even after February twenty fourth, even even uh, even after that, tanks even after moving, that, but yeah, yeah. That's the reason why so few people left. Also, because the government did not issue any orders to to leave, that's a that's another story. When you say we, who, what, what does your team look like? Do you have a so me, a videographer and leader of the team. Then there's a photographer, still photographer, and uh, a field producer. Uh, that's a luxury for a modern media team. That's a luxury to have three people. Usually, we are two or one. So you've got these bases set up. 
can you get into the logistics of like how many memory cards do you have? Like how many hours of footage can you store before you have to uh, dump them? Yeah. So like six memory cards. I'm filming 4K, 50, 50p. Um, there's six memory cards, about two, two hard drives. That that I was not prepared. Yeah, we were. I did not expect that I would run run out of space and and, and cards so quickly. Um, because I didn't know I'm gonna be filming everything. I have a habit of being a very economic. I film shots for the news. I film shots that I know I'm gonna be using. When I'm filming for news, I'm editing in my head. I enter the scene. I have kind of an understanding of how the edit will look like, well, considering things might change, and I shoot what I need. But after the day seven, when I start understanding that I need to film everything, then it becomes a challenge because you just don't turn off the camera. And you can see that in the film, which sometimes I would just drop the camera down. <laughs> that is actually one of the reasons for that. It's because Sony's are incredibly slow to turn on. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so you would prefer not to not to turn it off, right? At all, right? There were several moments which I totally missed because as you turn on the camera, things are gone. So the management became very hard, and I had to balance between filming everything, but also stopping whenever I I feel that I'm using using up too much space, or maybe exporting to my laptop only things which I need. But then again, you have only a, a little charge of your laptop, and you're still shooting for news. So you, you upload, what I don't know, like 20 gigabytes of the day which you filmed, and you have 50% of your battery because on the generator, laptops and everything charges very slow. You have to pick one minute and a half very carefully because you can't send more. You have to cut quickly, pick one minute and a half, split it into pieces, which whole file probably will not go. Upload everything, like download everything, manage, manage, the, manage the space. So that's a lot of... And probably at the same time, you're sitting somewhere under this... You've seen this place, like on these concrete stairs. You're sitting somewhere there under these concrete stairs, um, uh, just trying to catch the connection at the same time, talking to the, to the editor. So it's a lot to that's, manage. That's a lot to manage. But there is a habit to do that because, again, for AP, for AP, everything is urgent. Always. You have to edit, send, comment, Translate. So that is the speed you are getting used to. It's not a documentary kind of work speed. So at what point did you start thinking this could be a film? I mean, it, it, it sounds like you know over the years you've been, uh, it's been going around your head that the stuff you witness could be told in a different way than short news bites. Um, how did it coalesce that this could be a film? Somewhere by the 9th of March, after the um, after the maternity hospital bombing, uh, I I thought, okay, well, this is, I, if if this was a film, it would be a climax of the film. Be that's the habit of editing in in your head. Sure. Even before. Uh, 
this would be a climax and so therefore I need to find a character now if, if that's what's going to be a film it's just it's it wasn't even planning it was just like somewhere in the back of my head okay if someday if I survive if we are able to take everything out of the city uh, and I will need to record everything anyway and if someday it's going to be a film then how it should be and actually if you watch carefully, if you watch carefully the, the film, you can even see how how the the editing changes after after that day. Like before that day, you will you will see much clearer news dispatches, like separate days, and after that, the narrative is kind of more more connected. Kind of like when As, we meet Vladimir. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is yeah, after that you just. I remember meeting him and. Uh, he was driving with us, and I think, oh, if this is a documentary film, then he's an incredibly boring character for the film. <laughs> I thought he's not he's not fitting as a, and I thought maybe I need to I need to to find someone else. But he but, did turn but out. Again, but he did turn but out. Then again, and that's that's interesting because there is so much chaos, and things are happening around you. Then a stable character, a character that doesn't really change. Uh, it works, um, just like a simple square man, right? Uh, where the stories, who's the stories pivoting, pivoting around? I want to ask about the maternity hospital um, bombing and the footage you took, which did go around the world. Anyone who even was just casually following the war would probably remember uh, hearing about that moment. And we see in the film that it then becomes a target of Russian propaganda um, uh, uh, because it became such a big story, then th they tried to say that it's a made-up story. You were speaking earlier about what you've kind of observed of, of um, how uh, news can be uh, manipulated, and this seems like a classic uh, uh, example of it. What did you come away you know, thinking as you reflect on uh, on that moment, I mean, what does it say about the times we're living in that there are these powerful interests that can, you know, reshape what reporters are, are reporting? Uh, that definitely became a theme of the film, the way that information ripples through the world from an event. And the, the, the tool for that was uh, news dispatches that came before, between days and a theme of not misinformation but misinterpretation was again the important theme um, and that is why that is one of the reasons why uh, I've kind of accepted that the film is told through through a journalistic perspective in a way because I resisted that that idea for a long time I for a long time I didn't want to narrate the film for a long time, I didn't want this to be a journalistic perspective because I was afraid that it's going to take away the attention from the stories of the people who are who we are seeing. But since misinformation and uh, misinterpretation and fake news are, are such an important theme in a film, then having a journalist perspective works because that's the part of a story. And to be frank, I think what's what. Now we don't we don't really see that, but if you think deeply, that fake news, like or misinterpretation as 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 medium, because it's it's its own separate medium now, 
uh, that exists in, in, in its own kind of space. Uh, I think it historically is, is another valuable uh, documentation of our epoch, of, of our times. So the fake news for a future perspective are as important as as uh, as news as real stories because like they are chronic chronicling that that this fake yeah, news because is they out there. are because they are showing how our world works now how our media space works we we tend to disregard fake news as something that is not important but i think is a sign of of modern times and it has to be um, represented in in what we do now well, there's a moment in the film that I haven't uh, I've seen several films reporting on uh, the war, and uh, this was unique to me, where you're sh um, sheltering from bombing with some other uh, citizens of Mariupol, and um, and uh, some of the people sheltering uh, don't think that it's Russians that are bombing them. They think that it's the Ukrainian uh, army that's, uh, that's bombing them. Can you talk about why you wanted to keep that moment in the film. Yeah, uh, again, as I said, it was incredibly important to represent all the reactions that we saw, all the reactions on journalists in general and all the reactions to, to the events. So um, it's just a fair thing to do. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I think this is this is a, a very significant moment for the theme we just discussed. It's a very significant moment for the for the misinformation and uh, informational uh, and information blockade of the city. Because when you deprive people of of different points of views, when you deprive people of of the information, they believe everything they hear. And especially when they are in vulnerable state, I'll give you another example, which was told to me by doctors who um, who uh, gave us the scrubs, who tried to to hide us, and then who were in a hospital when we ran ran away. They uh, remained in a hospital when it got occupied, um, and Russians came in, and uh, the tank did shoot the hospital. Uh, between fifth and sixth floor, one of the patients died, unfortunately. It was just a few hours after we ran away. So after that, Russians take over, and here's, here's how the story unfolds. There is, all the patients are hiding in the basement of the hospital, hundreds of people, uh, very dark, dark, cold basement. And a Russian officer walks in, clean, polite, carrying several boxes of uh, humanitarian aid, places them on the floor, gives to people, takes a chair, sits down, and calmly starts telling, we saved you, everything is fine now, we will rebuild your city in two months, we will kill all the Nazis that were shooting at you, and things gonna go well, and he leaves, he comes next day, Places two boxes of the humanitarian aid. Gets the chair. You know, we just found a lot of booby traps that Nazis have set up for your children. And we, we uh, secured them and everything's fine now. We saved your children. 
and we're going to be feeding you and so on and so forth. You know, three, four days in, you can imagine what is happening to, to most of the people's minds who were isolated from everything, who didn't understand what is happening. That's how it works. Throughout 20 Days in Mariupol, Mstislav talks about how he misses his two young daughters while he's covering the war. As our conversation drew to a close, I thought about this line from the film. I want all of this to stop, but I have no power over it. My memory keeps carrying me back home and back to war. If someday my daughters ask me, what did you do to stop this madness? this sadistic virus of destruction. I want to be able to give them an answer. You talk about uh, this balance between when you're in the field, missing your family, missing your daughters, wanting to see them again. Um, and, you know, each time you take a new risk uh, going out to to do the valuable reportage you do, um, it's a risk. Uh, and I wonder how you, you know, year after year balance that risk. Um, yeah, I, 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 w I wish I could tell you I can balance this, really. And, but I don't think there is any balance in, in the war zone. Like, you just, you just cannot be in balance. You have to sacrifice certain stuff. And I... Uh, in, in my heart, I apologize to my daughters all the time for not being there with them enough. But at the same time, I feel that if I was there, not somewhere else doing what I do, um, they would be, it would be even worse. And I don't, again, I don't want to, I don't want it to sound as a something as as a mission because there is there is a danger for there is a danger for war journalists or war correspondents or filmmakers to to say I'm on a mission for humanity and that is dangerous for the perspective but also not entirely true to to yourself uh, so we just got to do things that when we do them we feel that we, we are in the right place in the right time we're doing what we are supposed to do and if you if you have that feeling then you're doing the right thing i want to thank mr slav chernov for speaking with me his film 20 days in mariupol is featured on the doc nyc shortlist and will be streaming on pbs frontline starting november 21st not subscribed to our free newsletters, please sign up at purenonfiction.net. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan, marketing manager Bella Racklin, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. Follow us on Instagram at purenonfiction.net.